0: Mike, how's it going today? I'm good. I'm a little hungry, so I hope
1: you have something for me, Josh.
0: Yes. Well, all right. So I was running a little bit late. I wanted to get this whole complex meal, and I'll and I'll get it for you another time. But instead, I went to a local West Side favorite of mine. It's a place called Tacos Por Favor. Ooh. Which translates to
1: please, please, please tacos, please tacos, yeah, please tacos, Uh yeah. Uh,
0: And I got you a California burrito. Oh. A cal-
1: apropos of being
0: in California. California burrito, uh, carne asada, uh, guacamole, cheese, french fries, oh. all wrapped up in a delicious tortilla, and then an assortment of um, salsas, chips,
1: green salsa, pico de gallo. Mm. What's your favorite salsa? Uh, I think pico de gallo, actually, to be honest. I, I like, a, like kind of the smoky salsa, too. I forget what that one's called. It's kind of like a darker... Darker uh, colors also. Like chipotle. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Have you ever cooked with those chipotle tomato, those chipotle peppers? Yes, I have. Adobe. Yeah, they're fantastic. They're like a secret ingredient in so many different things. Actually, just putting a little can of those in makes things completely better. And I li- like the the color it turns. I do. Everything. It's like a mole color a little bit. Yeah, it's very it's, nice. It's delicious. Green hatch chilies too are some of my favorite things in the world to cook with, and they're only available part of the year, fresh. Mm. My buddy from New Mexico turned me on to them. So, who do we have today, though, Josh? All right. So, Michael Peterson is our
0: guest today, and Michael's uh, a close friend of mine. Um, I I, and we met him on Bones, where he started as a staff writer in, God, I want to say- Season four. Se- season four? Yep. Yeah. Season four of Bones, and ended up being the showrunner, the co-showrunner, With John Collier for the last two seasons of Bones, so he went from staff writer to executive producer, showrunner.
1: Yeah, and he told us some great stories about coming up in this business, meeting the original dude El Duderino, and also uh, selling a script to Francis Ford Coppola way early on, right? Yeah, and uh,
0: a lot of of great stuff in this episode, and I think like a lot of great stuff for um, up and coming writers, and just like kind of what it, you know, the the rarity of going from uh one show from the bottom to the top.
1: Yep. Sit back and enjoy folks. Welcome to Second Meal, a podcast where we discuss life, the industry, food, and what it means to live and work in Los Angeles. We're your hosts, Michael Grant Terry and Josh Levy. Sit back and enjoy a second meal. Michael Peterson, thanks for coming on our podcast.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. So we have been really delving into Los Angeles and why people are here and what brought them here. You're from North Carolina, correct?
2: Uh that is correct. In yeah. Roundabout sort of way. I was born in Philly, lived in Ohio. That's right. Yeah. Where is, I didn't know that. We're in Philly again? Uh, just off of uh, South Street I was born, and I w- grew up in Swarthmore.
1: Okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. I totally forgot that. The like, Philly endeavor of bones continues. It's like nonstop Philadelphia people.
0: You, Eugene, Boreanis,
1: Michaela. Michaela. Michaela's Allentown. I don't know. It's a little been outside been, of Philadelphia. I've never been Philadelphia, <laughs> so. <laughs> but, um, so. So you went to North Carolina. What, like, where did writing come from? Where did that passion start for you?
2: Um, where did writing passion it, I think for me it's a combination of things uh, my parents, everybody in my family was an English major except for me I was a business major at Carolina and the reason I was that is the day that I got to North Carolina they dissolved the film department they moved all the state funding to North Carolina School of the Arts and so I had nowhere to go and so I was like what's your best major <laughs> and I picked business so it was really by default um, as far as writing the thing, I think I, I still would rather direct Oh, nice. Right. But my problem was, I was never good at getting other people's money. I always felt guilty about the idea of, like, I want to raise money for a, you know, to do a short or whatever, but I'm, I'm going to lose your money is basically what right. you're really saying to most people when you do that. And I wasn't good at doing that. Now, a script you can just write, it costs you final draft
1: and your time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your precious I, time.
2: Yes, yeah. I have low self esteem, though. My time is worth nothing. So. <laughs> But that that's so that that was really it. But uh, yeah, everybody in my family, they're storytellers. Uh, Mom was an English professor. Uh, My dad actually English major, but then became a tax attorney. My brother was an English major. So we just told stories. But I was the dumb jock of the family, (laughs) without a doubt. I swam in high school. I swam in college. And uh, it was really at some point I was but I was just dumb enough to go, well, why not?
1: Well, that's I mean, confidence, though. I think that's confidence that comes with sports at all, or no? I mean, because I, I feel like sometimes people who take leap of faith into this business, you got to be a little dumb and a little confident, yeah. because it's not really the easiest thing to do, and also, it's the easiest thing to fail at.
2: Yeah. No, and also, I had no idea what I was getting into. I'm in North Carolina, and, you know, it, what the crazy thing is, I was at a small school. It was 32 people, and out of those 32 people, four of us are in the business. Uh, So it is It was was in high school And so it's a unique group that we brought together We started a film club there But I don't think any of us really thought that this was going to happen That's a lot, 4 out of 32 It's an insane amount of people So uh, we've got uh, Ramin Barani Who just directed Fahrenheit 451 On HBO Mm -hmm. Uh And now he's doing Treadstone I think uh, Doing the pilot for that I mean he could not be hotter Robert Ebert before he died Considered him the best American director that there is, And he's phenomenal So he was in My class, Um, Eli Frankel was in my class. He was on Shameless. He still, I think, is on Shameless. He's on Animal Kingdom. Phenomenal writer. Another friend of mine, Mark Hester, is a fantastic actor. He actually lives in Atlanta, but makes a full-time living. Off of acting so it's crazy out of this small group of people how many of us ended up doing this business so do you want and, to give and, a and, shout out
0: to the name of the high school so people can uh, go there and then go their chances <laughs> exponentially
2: <laughs> uh, no but the crazy thing I think it was just our class. Yeah, it was. Oh, oh, it, not, it was. No. Didn't continue. Did that film club afterward. continue or no? It, I think the film club did. But I mean, it really was an excuse for us to watch rated R movies. I yeah, oh, so, yeah. I mean, That's what we did, and nobody ever, you know, looked in to see what we were doing. But it was just why not? Let's just take as much advantage of the system. as so possible.
1: So, what were some movies like that of that time that were inspirations to
2: you? Oh, I mean, I'm a I'm born of you know Spielberg and yeah. uh, Coppola. So you know, yeah. we watched Godfather, we watched Goodfellas, yeah, Goodfellas. we watch uh, you know, but we watched Seven Samurai. We uh-huh. watch uh, classics as well. But it was a lot of Star Wars, the a 70s. lot of Raiders the Lost Star yeah, Wars, a lot the of Lost, yeah, the Golden Age case. of
1: the '70s movies, yeah. yeah, which are fantastic, yeah. And so, what what was the impetus to move to LA? I mean, obviously, you were interested in, in the business, but you why did you how did you make that move to Los Angeles?
2: I had very supportive parents. I mean, bottom line, that was the end of it. Uh, You know, I grew up and, you know, I had posters. I had movie posters all the time. We'd go to Blockbuster Video. I had to ask for the posters when they were done with them. My dad (laughs) would look out for the posters for me when they would come down. And so I had hundreds upon hundreds of movie posters. And in my room, I think at any one time, there's like 20 on the walls. And my dad, uh, very supportive, he would always send me articles about whatever I was interested in. He just, I was thinking about moving out there, and he goes, I went back to your room, and you have 20 posters on the wall, and 19 of them are movies. you move out. What was the other one? It was a car. And, <laughs> okay, uh, there you go. And honestly, I think that was only there because I think it was in the background of Ferris Bueller.
1: Right, exactly. I think that was... Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. It, uh-huh. was, it really was an reason. homage to that. Yeah. yeah,
2: it was either that or a risky business. It was an homage right. to a movie. I was right. like, oh, well, that's what they do, so I better do it. So it was it was just pure ignorance. And I came out, and I, I, I didn't know, you know anybody out here. But... And to this day, I mean, it's it's one of the best decisions and also one of the worst because I had no idea what I was getting into. I think I thought California was Hawaii. I think that, <laughs> that's the big mistake I realized yeah. now because the water is not warm out here, guys. No. Anybody listening to this, it is cold as hell. Well, I I was going to come in and surf and all this stuff, and I'd still surf, but it's freezing out yeah. there. And, and, you know, so that's really – I thought it was going to be – as clean as Hawaii also, and it's not that either. So well, it's the same sort of with the place. writing.
0: You need to be have super you know, high amounts of confidence and also be a little dumb.
2: Absolutely stupid. No, and even when I first got out here, my first job, uh, once I got out, well, first I went up to, um, my whole plan was I was going to drive from North Carolina to L.A., and I was going to take, like, 30 days to do it, and I had all these stops that I was going to make along the way, and it was just going to be this great, epic adventure. But I drove a Jeep Wrangler, and the gas mileage on Jeep Wrangler is just horrible, and the price of gas, right. I realized I'd be very broke by the time I got here. So instead of 30-something days, I got here in two days. I just went <laughs> straight across, from, and that was while losing a cap to a tooth on the way. Oh, and God. still got here in like two days, and actually it wasn't even L.A. I went to San Francisco instead. My brother was living there at the time. And he knew one person in Hollywood. And so I went there to have lunch with this person and to get his advice. And uh, I forget his name now, but he was like the eighth producer on Return of the Jedi.
1: <laughs> That's a good meeting, actually. It's, That's a really good first meeting.
2: It's not bad. It was, it was not bad. Um, but he had quit the business, and he was doing video games. And uh, his advice was, and it was a very quick meeting. He was very nice, but it was very quick. And he said, uh, offer your services for free. Someone will hire you. If you do a good job, then they'll pay you eventually. And I don't even think you can do that anymore. The the state of internships these days. No,
1: I mean, like you. It's. I think it's actually hard to even get an internship at this point. Or even. I don't even know. Like, is PA work hard to get at this point? It was the Fox movie, uh, Natalie Portman, Black Swan.
0: Black Swan. There were, I believe, one or two PAs who ended up uh, filing a lawsuit against the producers for making them do things like take out the trash and drive people. And that kind of put the uh, well,
2: they were uh, interns, so they were unpaid. Right, and that yeah. was that was always because interns are supposed to be just learning. But for right. forever in Hollywood, they, nobody did that. It was a that's what a, I did. Uh, it was an yeah. unpaid way to get free labor. Right. and it was just. I mean, there's so many revelations now where they're like, oh, you know, Harvey Weinstein—that's bad behavior. And back in the day, some of that stuff was almost not not what Harvey did, but yeah. a lot of the stuff is was just par for the course. I mean, interns were expected just to be free labor. And you just can't do those things anymore. No, but, and but I think it's intern. invaluable,
1: actually. Invaluable, because, I mean, I interned, and you guys saw Swimming with Sharks. Do you remember that movie? Kevin Spacey, yeah, yes, yeah. I remember, I remember making the tea. I had to make the tea exactly the right way that my boss liked it, and it was PG tips with one and a half of, of uh, sugar in the raw and cream. But look, look, like, it was an awesome experience, and I think it's unfair that a couple people took that away because it opened a lot of doors for me, and actually ended up being a paying job for me. So I think it's, it's a, it's an. well, I believe the the
0: PA who, or the intern who ended up, uh, filing that lawsuit, I believe was like 43 years old
1: and like had a, had a grudge.
2: Yeah. I would imagine at that
1: point. So you get out to LA, you have that meeting. I have that meeting. So,
2: and then I drove down the next day. And started interviewing just randomly at jobs. And this was, you know, back then, uh, variety, I think, was one of the better ways. Uh, You know, there was the UTA job list still and stuff like that. And so, but I didn't know. Anybody at all. So it really was just looking more or less in variety. And so I ended up at this company, Valdoro Entertainment. Uh went to an interview there. And this is uh, Stephen D'Souza is the mm-hmm. writer who went and he did every hit of the 80s. This is Die Hard, Die Hard Two, 48 Hours, The Running Man. Amazing, amazing films. And so I'm sitting for my interview, and this wonderful woman, Rossi Gross, she just tells me to wait. She's got to interview somebody else ahead of time. And she goes back into this other room to interview him, and meanwhile the phone starts ringing, and it keeps ringing. And I'm just like, oh, screw this. And so I went over and I picked up the phone, <laughs> and I said, Valdoro Entertainment, <laughs> and it was Stephen on the line calling for Rossi. I said, well, okay, just one second. I put her on, on hold, and I walked back, and I said, Stevens on the line, and she went back and she, I kind of hear the other side. It's like, yeah, yeah, no, he seems good. Okay, yeah, and kind of hangs up. And then moments later, I had the job. That's incredible. So that was just, I mean, it was probably you, the phone's ringing. Should, Pick it up. Yeah, I guess yeah. yeah opportunity calls. Um, so that was really as that was as easy as it went down. So again, it was an unpaid internship, and same thing happened. About two weeks later, you know, they said you're doing a good job, we'll start paying.
1: Yeah, exactly. And
2: so stayed there for two years and that was just an amazing learning experience. And was that development, like script development? Technically. I mean, at the end of it, this, this is one of those things back in the day. So uh, when I started off there, there was like five of us and slowly, you know, people left, got fired or whatever else happened until at the end, I think it was myself and just Steven. Right. And so, you know, at the end he's like, well, what do you want your title to be at this point? Right. And I'm like, <laughs> Director of development. And sure enough, that is, I put that in. And back in the day, what was it? The Hollywood Creative Directory was the book that they uh had. So it had there in Michael Peterson, uh, director of development. And they had me on panels for Variety. And I'm like... 24 I have no idea what I'm talking <laughs> about because really it was there wasn't any real development we we're doing except for Steven's stuff so but I'd go on these panels with all these other people like oh well we read all these other submissions so I'm like yes we do that too and uh what do you look for I'm like I'm making everything I had no idea what I was talking about <laughs> and I still hadn't written a script right I didn't even understand what it was that would make me a writer I, would th- I thought eventually Stephen would just get so much work he would look at me and go you you smart kid here have some work <laughs> i didn't understand even the basics of what was going were on were you doing there. coverage script coverage at all or were it like work? not as much because again i was mostly just was, servicing him right, so i okay. was just doing you know i would uh, you know edit his stuff for him you know right. mostly look for typos and stuff like that page count i mean this is I'm, this is really dating yourself it's yeah. like these are co- back when copiers were completely unreliable where you'd have to page count Me too. every no, single one yeah, with a little with a little rubber thing finger. yeah i did that
1: a working title i did the same thing you have to, and you would get in so much trouble if there's a page missing from the script, because oh, you're yeah. giving
2: them to people. And if there's one page missing, you are fucked. Yeah. You know? No, PDF is the greatest oh, thing yeah. ever. Just be able to send stuff electronically right. by PDF. I'm like, I, that's when I get my grumpy old man. In my day, we yeah. used to. And it was true. I mean, uh. Everything was just such a process yeah. back in the day. Lugging
0: so. those boxes full of scripts home for the weekend.
2: Yeah. I mean, I
1: missed the acting portion of that uh, by like a year, which is where you'd have to go pick up sides from your agency or have them faxed to, to you. But you would have to go at the end of the day, drive into Beverly Hills, pick up all your sides for your audition the next day and then go home. And that's how you would get them. Like, you know, you wouldn't get sent them unless you were a baller, you'd get a messenger ser- service sending it to you. But otherwise, you'd have to physically go in there and pick them all up and brave traffic and come home and then learn all your lines from like 8 p.m. till 11 before the next day's auditions.
0: Now, were you acting when they were still doing physical headshots?
1: Like, Oh, sending yeah. Out? yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Because that hasn't been until pretty recently where they do electronic.
1: Uh, The last, maybe like five years ago that started going away, but you every once in a while get the random person who's like, please bring a physical headshot in. And they're like the dying breed of like three casting directors that still want a hard copy. And I have like 10 in a drawer, which are like from like 10 years ago. So they're just getting the old ones. Yeah, my first internship was at a small uh,
0: talent agency, very, very small talent agency, and I would be in charge, like, first thing in the morning, and I worked there for, like, three weeks, it was an awful place, but was getting the headshots, right, and putting the headshots in the envelope, making the label, sending it off, making sure that it got, and it was just, it was like... This has become so inefficient because you would send the same headshot to the same casting director two weeks in a row for the for different roles on. It the was show. such a waste of money for actors actually
1: because headshots are expensive. Yeah,
0: you had to pay for them. Yeah, and and agencies and had to pay off for at yeah your exactly. Agent.
1: There's and the agencies had to pay for whatever messenger services. I mean, it was such it was very inefficient.
0: If there's any headshot photographers listening to this, Mike's very sorry for uh, <laughs> your, lack,
1: your business drive. now. Well, photographers are fine. It's the printing companies I feel bad about, actually. Sort of.
2: So you, so but that, you. But that was a huge business. Yeah. Back the, the printing of those, whether what the cost was. I mean, I mean, even the copy people are. Yeah. Got to be. They've got to be going now. out of business. I, yeah, because it's just not the same. L. A. You know, you, we would spend thousands when I was at D'Souza every month just making copies.
0: Well, and there would be all the copy shops in Hollywood and wherever it would have how much it costs to print a script on the outside of the door. Yeah.
1: Well, the only thing that I... And I feel bad saying this, but like for, for Bones, for example, I actually... The only demand I ever made was I wanted a hard copy every every episode because I break down scripts on a hard copy and put tabs in. And like I still need that process of having a hard copy of a script, which I'm sure you do as a writer as well, I would imagine. 100%. No, yeah. I, I kill a lot of trees. Yeah, I know. I kill a lot of trees too. So it's like that is the one thing that I, I've i gone to copy places to print out scripts that I've been working on or that I can't get a hard copy sent to me. And also I just learned that um, like conventions, they still use – the headshots when they sign when people are signing pictures at, at comic cons and stuff like that so they got to be making some money from that still so i don't feel too bad for it'd be people. pretty interesting if you brought
0: your ipad with a with
1: a headshot of mike <laughs> and a on PDF? your
2: ipad and just sign please the put iPad. your email in here and you just send it off but the last year bones i mean it was still 50 60 people came in with headshots really yeah wow it was, it was shocking, yeah, I mean, but I think it's just that one last impression. It's, it gives you something bigger to look at. And yeah. I don't know, it, it does leave something of an impression. So it's not it's not the worst thing in the world. No,
1: I, I, I see you holding a physical copy in your hand while they're in the room with you and getting to see their resume rather than just yeah. like a quick blurb. I, I think that also there's a difference in like, if you're going in for a pre-read or if you're going in straight to producers, I, I think that like, if you're known more of a known actor, there's less of a chance you're bringing a headshot in. You can kind of weed out who is just starting out when they're bringing headshots because I would absolutely bring a headshot to every audition when I was just starting out because I wanted to make sure that they remembered me had a physical copy that they could keep when I left. Yeah, no,
2: I'm an, I'm nodding a lot right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah.
1: So you, so where did you transition to after that job? Like, and how did you transition out of that, and why?
2: Uh, what, what happened there is at the end, it was pretty much just myself and Steven in the office, and I, I learned a ton. I was starting to write on my own. Uh, first couple scripts I wrote with my brother. Uh, my brother was in San Francisco. He moved down. Uh, he's five and a half years older than I am, so we just started banging out scripts as quick as we could. We started off with just, you know, what do we know something about? Um, and at the time my brother had been reading a lot of books about Jack the Ripper so we're like oh we're, we're to Jack the Ripper script so we finished it and it was like the day we finished it we heard this Johnny Depp movie from Hell was coming out yeah. so you're like okay we're going to shelf that one and so then we got okay what else do we know about oh we know about superheroes so we wrote this uh, superhero satire about these guys who get powers but they're really useless powers it's oh, a no. guy who's like you know, uh, fear of flying uh, no he's, he's, he gets the ability to fly but he has a fear of height so he only flies really low to the ground uh, there's the guy who can turn <laughs> invisible but he's obese so he doesn't like doing it because he has to still take off all of his clothes. So it was just kind of these useless powers. (laughs) So we wrote that and then I think Mystery Men came out and tanked and you're like okay never mind that one. So we just kept writing these ones and they kept something similar came out uh, and that just got us to write our ideas faster. We're like okay if you know if we're just behind the curveball here we just gotta get a little ahead of it so we we kept doing uh, work meanwhile you know I think I'd switched jobs by then uh, mostly because I, I realized being at a job where it's just one-on-one I wasn't meeting anybody in LA yeah I needed a job where there'd be a lot of people and the more people I could interact with plus I, uh, we hadn't done any production and I wanted to be on set. So, um, the woman who hired me, Rossi, she had moved on and worked with this producer named David Valdez and they were doing, uh, the green mile. And so she asked if I wanted to come on board as a PA for that. And you don't say no to that. Yeah. One. So I'm like, course. absolutely. So I jumped at that and I wasn't on the main production. It was once they came back to LA cause they did a lot of stuff in North Carolina, ironically enough. Um, but once they came back, I got to work on that and that was just fantastic. Just being on set every single day, um, that was wonderful. Was that
1: the first time you'd actually spent time on set?
2: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I'd done a couple small productions where I'd look in you know, Backstage West or something right. like that and just find these little short gig- film. Yeah, well, I did one for Comedy Central where uh, it was just they, they needed some extra PAs, and I'd never gotten a paycheck where my, my last hour of work was higher than the rest of the hours because we were, I think, we were in our. Twenty-fourth hour oh, uh, yeah. to finish it off, so we'd get the pay scale just greatly changed. Uh, so I'd done a couple of ones like that, but this was the first real one. This was an you know, fantastic. This is the foremost a lot, and it was just this huge, big production. And you're sitting there with uh, you know Frank Darabonts doing oh it. God. Who you know we'd come off you know Shawshank, which is arguably. Best movie ever. Yeah, I mean, I love nobody that movie. dislikes no, no. Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. So, and you know, it was it was just this incredible production. You know, Tom Hanks is there. Then, uh, for me, one of the big ones was Sam Rockwell. That was kind of his coming out, right? And he was such this force. I mean, all the other actors. It didn't matter if they were in the scene; they would show up to watch. And he was. He was just. I, mean, I remember. I remember to this day. You know, the, his death sequence. of That. I mean, we were all just. What is he going to do on this take? And it was just. Miraculous, And I, I realized, I mean, I wanted to be on set. I loved writing, but I wanted to be on set. Yeah. So uh, it took a long time to figure it out. I kept doing features and I got some luck. I got some sales here and there. But my wife was the smart one who said, I think you want to transition to TV because I think you really want to write and be in production and you want to be around people.
1: Yeah, so you're not just isolated. Were you writing at home when you were writing features? I was writing at home, and and
2: we did fine. I mean, my brother and I, our first sale was we sold a script to Francis Ford Coppola's company. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has a fantastic website called American Zoetrope. So it's this open forum where you can go in with all these other writers, and you can do short stories, you can do screenplays, and you just basically grade each other and have reviews. And so one day, Francis Ford Coppola came on the website and said, Um, I just made a lot of money, basically, on this movie Jeepers Creepers. Yeah. Um, Does anybody have a horror film out there? And so my brother and I submitted this one that we had, and they bought it. Uh, Technically, very much an option. And we were the worst negotiators. I mean, we didn't get a lot of money at (laughs) all. Did you have an agent at the time? Didn't have an agent, didn't have anything. So um, we, I think... You know, we got something like a $1,000 yeah. or whatever. for, But we were tough negotiators. Yeah. So we're like, and we want a bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> and, cause, and we looked it up. What's the best one he had? It was like a 97 Rubicon. is what it's was called. <laughs> and we want a 97 Rubicon. And we want it signed by Francis. And I want a copy of the Godfather DVDs <laughs> signed by Francis. And they're like, sure, whatever, you putts. Yeah, they're like, you yeah, could have
1: yeah, gotten a yeah. case if you would asked for yeah, a case. Yeah,
2: you could have <laughs> gotten anything. You could probably could have gotten more than yeah, $1,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't take the first deal. You Don't know, take the first deal. Yeah. Done. Yeah. So it was... Uh, uh, but it was fantastic, you know, and we got to go up to uh, the the uh, wine, winery up there. Uh, we had to do some um, script readings up there, and that was just fantastic. Super cool. Yeah. So, it, but again, that just died. And we we did a bunch of those, where it was like, okay, we'll write another one, and it would sell, and then for a little bit of money. And then die, right? And that was that seemed to be the pattern of film. It just was hard, and it eventually you know took a toll. And I just didn't want to do it anymore. Well, and you weren't seeing
1: your work come to fruition, right? I mean, which I think is like the problem a lot with writing features is you don't necessarily. It's so rare that you actually see that go all the way from your script to a film. Or get it taken over by somebody else and have it be rewritten like 80 times and then yeah. it's no longer yours anymore, really.
2: Yeah, and it just seems so whimsical. I remember we uh, we my brother and I sold this script where uh, it was called Hell Week because we're like... There's never been a movie called Hell Week. I'm still <laughs> amazed there's never been a movie called surprising. Hell Week. Where it's just like, especially at the time, it was all these ones that were, uh, they seem to have these themes like there's Valentine's Day. Right, you know, or right, whatever. yeah. So there's all these uh, ones around. Some prom holiday, Night. Prom yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, all right, Hell Week, how, how has that not been done? So, you know, it, it is exactly what you think it would be. It's yeah. you know, it's a fraternity, people start dying. Is it a prank or are they really dying? And so we wrote this and it was right when Japanese horror started to hit. Uh-huh. And so we sell it and then you know the ring comes out and it's huge and we our note that we literally got was can you add a dead japanese girl to this and we <laughs> we said well that no and they said okay fine and they hired a writer who would
1: oh and my so gosh.
2: it was one of those ones where you're like oh well rats i thought we were you know being strong Yeah, stood up, they our, stood up for stood yeah. up for our vision if you would
0: just asked for that signed bottle of wine on that part, <laughs> too.
2: Sign bottle of sake. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so did, did how did you lead to getting your first um, representation for writing?
2: Um, well, as the catch twenty two always works, nobody wants you until you actually have sold something. Right. So it was the American Zoetrope one because that was an open forum one, and that was that was the lucky break. That it was enough. That I think we got a manager off of that. But I think our first manager, the company went out of business, and they never told us. So, I mean, it was one of those where it was not a great management company. Mm -hmm. So it was for a long time kind of switching back and forth from different companies and just trying to find somebody. There was a lot of times where it was like, people, oh, we love you. And then we're like, okay, so you'll send my script out. They're like, no, but would you write my idea? So there was a lot of those ones where it's like, oh, you just want a free writer to write your Uh, idea. Um, And that still happens. And sometimes those can work out great. But it was a lot of times I'm like, if I'm going to put in the effort, I want to write one of my own ideas. Right. So, um, yeah, so just kept doing it. It was always just enough to keep me in business, but I always had day jobs. Um, you know, I, I worked for fascinating people during these time because after uh, the Green Mile, the tough thing that about production is, you know, once it ends, you're unemployed and you are out there. And I still hate that. It still just feels awful. Then you're really scrounging. So after that, I went and worked for this guy named Jeff Dowd, who's better known as The Dude.
0: Yes, yeah. this is yeah. this is the
2: basis for who the big I interviewed. Lebowski.
0: Who I interviewed with?
2: Yeah, uh, and he's fantastic. I mean, he is a, he's a living legend. Um, but that was my next job. Was you know he was working for the dude and finding distribution for independent films. Wow. and he's just this huge, large in life character. And for people who don't know, the the story goes for the Cohen brothers how he the Coens got to know uh, the dude. Um, they had their first film, Blood Simple, and they'd heard of the dude has been this guy, this larger-than-life personality, a slob. And, uh, you know, he was great at the Toronto Film Festival especially. I mean, that was one where he's plugged in, he knows everybody there. And so they had Blood Simple, and they wanted him to find distribution for this film. And so they call up his room, and he doesn't answer there. And But they'd heard legends of who, who this guy was, and they're like, all right, so if the dude's not in his room... Where would he be? And he's like, craft services will know where the dude is <laughs> <laughs> And so they, they called this number down in the kitchen for craft services and the dude actually picks up the phone. he dude here, he picks up oh their my phone God. and because he is he's down there just eating Knock. all their food in yeah. the kitchen wow. ahead of time and that's how they apparently got introduced to each other. oh my God so uh, it was great, you know and it was you know we'd be out there you know scrounging for whatever film we were working on that week. Um, but that wasn't a long job, but it, w- it was a fantastic one. I think the dude's 50th birthday was while I was there. And, uh, you know, he did. He gave me a bag full of joints and said, make sure everyone <laughs> at this party gets one. And, you know, that's just why you're out here in this business.
1: I wonder what the breed- dude's uh, second favorite second meal was. I would imagine, like, maybe a Caucasian, like, S- uh, like Kahlua and some half and half.
0: <laughs> so, like, about 10 years ago, when I was in between jobs, I went and interviewed with the dude. And I believe I told you the story one of the days when we were hanging out, but he is that person. He was in a full blown like recliner (coughs) while was being interviewed. And it was the his office had most likely eating soup. He had a
2: lot of soup. He would do interviews just eating <laughs> shoveling in soup no soup but like
0: he explained all the Lebowski festivals and his role in what he was doing in the film distribution and he was like the most relaxed like nicest guy there was like all these big Persian rugs like all over the place it was like another dimension that I was in and I was just it, it was fascinating um, so so the dude abides
2: the dude, the dude <laughs> does abide. Uh, but no, it, but again, just fantastic experience, and, and I and I loved him. He was uh, he was great. I mean, he was he was he was just all over the place. He's he's a force to be reckoned with. But he's he's just. He's fantastic. He's genuine, I think is what people respond to to him is I think Roger Ebert had an article about him where it said uh, there's something about meeting a guy who has a stain on his shirt in the morning and we see him that evening. He's still got the same shirt on. Yeah. And when you're surrounded by Hollywood slick people, you're like, that guy I want to talk to. That guy seems genuine and I want to be around him. And he is. He's genuine. He's got that passion. And that's why he's still doing it.
1: So where did you go after that?
2: I think after that, um, I, I don't remember my resume exactly, but I think I eventually ended up with um, this company Artist Management Group, which was Michael Ovis's company yeah. after he left Disney. So he opened up this uh, shingle, which is a management company, it was a production company, it was huge. Um, he really did, he had all the best talent going there. And this is just when management companies were taken off. So, you know, uh, the Yorns were also there as managers, so they had you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh you know, um this is after he CAA, right? Uh, yeah, this is yeah, right C- after it was CAA, Disney, and then this. Okay, okay, yeah. And so I, I came in there and it was during a tough time for the company. Mm-hmm. It was one where the artist production group had they had gone all the television group had gone all out. I think they had sold as many pilots as most, you know, studios had. And I think they had some like eleven pilots that they did.
0: And I think they were and also only, really oh, early into digital video.
2: They did everything early on. I mean it, it was like oh six. Don't date me. No, uh, no hey, I, I, I don't know. Hey, dating myself it, it, around that. yeah. It was, it was probably even earlier. Than yeah, that. okay. So, um, but it was just this dynamic place. I mean, there were, there were hundreds upon hundreds of employees there. And I was just one of the lowest. I was the assistant to the director of development. Right. And um, so, but it was, I mean, he had his own art gallery there. I mean, people regularly would walk by your little cube and they'd be looking at the art that Ovitz would have on the wall. And it was just, that he had his own curator on staff and stuff. So it was just... This amazing place, and you'd see him give these speeches, and you understood exactly why he had ascended to the power that he had. But it was a tough time because the, the television group just it didn't have – it looked like it had a great season where 11 pilots picked up, but only one of them, I think, went to series. Uh, yeah. And that one only went 10 episodes. Right. And so it was just – and I think it was a lot of his own money. Again, don't yeah. quote me exactly, but I think that's what happened right. there. And so, you know, the company started getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was the person with the safest job because my job was basically moving people out of their offices, reprogramming phones, <laughs> yeah. and doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, does your uh, – make? oh, you got to cancel your FOB. Your FOB's not allowed to work anymore. Yeah. And so we're switching all that around. And then finally they sold the company to this other uh, group called The Firm, which is another management company that was run by Jeff Quatnitz. Mm-hmm. And so I stayed on – for that. Um, it, yeah, it's, there are moments where it seems like I've, I've had a little bit of a Forrest Gump life in different parts of this <laughs> because at the time, our director of, uh, of, uh, operations who I was working under was this woman named Chris Lannan and Chris Lannon, And, um, she, uh, she she hated politics she she would hate cuz i'd go into her office every day at lunch and at the time i had to happen to be interested in politics and i'd watch cnn she's like i don't understand why you watch this this is boring we're in entertainment but there's something about it i guess i don't know if it was business major me or politics i don't know what it was but i'd watch this and she just hated it and then one day she tells me she's leaving the firm she goes i got this better gig i'm going to go work for arnold schwarzenegger and i'm like oh great good good luck have fun and then two weeks after that, he announced he was going to run for governor. So all of a sudden, she calls me up. She goes, "Thank you for making me watch all that politics and stuff like that." Because um, so, but it was uh, so that was so. She left. I took over that job, and it was again, it was just a day job. It was very much you know, moving offices, programming phones, mm-hmm. doing stuff like that. But it gave me time to write in the morning. And the other thing that was great is it gave me access to a bunch of people. Right. Uh, in the business. Uh, the number one thing I could say to anybody trying to do be in this business is you know really branch out and network and try to work for a company where there's a lot of people. Because when those early years with uh, D'Souza the dude, those were great, but I didn't get to branch out and meet a lot of people right. during the day. Even working on a production is great. There's 200 other people. Right. Working at the firm was great. There's 300 other people. And you never know when those contacts are going to make a difference. The script that I mentioned earlier, Hell Week, that we sold, that came because I was at the firm actually at the time and this kid came in. It was, I think, it was his first day in the mailroom. And he goes, uh, "Who here writes scripts?" And I raised my hand. I'm like, "I write scripts." He goes, "Great. I want one because that's what I want to do. Is I want to be a producer." So that's what he did the first day. I gave him Hell Week. He went home, read it, gave it to a buddy of his, and a week later, it sold to MGM.
1: This is a kid who was in the mailroom. In the mailroom. Wow. But his ambitious. But a buddy. <laughs>
2: but a buddy. Wait, his, he knew
1: He knew a guy who could do stuff with he it. He knew a guy who
2: was yeah. a, a actual director of development, not yeah. a fake director of development. And so that's how that happened. Um, same thing happened at the firm, um, again, dating ourselves as far as, you know, um, headshots and all that. We also used to send out videos of actors and yeah. actual videos yeah. of it. We're talking about an expense is we right. have to be in VHS the dub tapes. room making VHS tapes rather yeah. than just sending a link. So the guy who was in charge of that uh, was this guy named Darren Bowsman. And we got to be good friends. And I mean, it really was. It was we. It was almost like being back in uh, high school, and you're watching movies when you can sneak away. We, I'd sneak away to the dub room, and we'd watch whatever. Yeah. and Talk uh, smack, and um, so. But he was very ambitious, also, and he wanted to be a director. And so later on, um, we had there were opportunities to do uh, music videos at the firm, and also commercials. And we would promise stuff that was outrageous. We're like, uh, we'll give you five commercials for five thousand dollars, and we'll shoot it in thirty-five millimeter and all this, and. They gave it to us. And so all of a sudden, you know, it's myself, director of operations, and the guy in the dub room, um, he ended up writing this script that uh, became Saw 2. And wow. he also directed Saw 2. But I remember we skipped work one day at the firm where, you know, Lionsgate called him up and they said, you know, we're interested in this. We got this film. It hasn't been released yet. We're going to show you it. And then would you adapt yours to become the sequel? And so we snuck away and saw saw very early on, and he still didn't want to do it. Uh, I I love Darren to death, and he's a true... Tour. I mean, he's he's done some interesting stuff afterwards. We'll get to that in a second. But he was a little. He was very much on the fence. He's like, no, 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 I'm not doing it. And he goes, I'm doing mine as an original, and everything. Right. Else. And finally, he did. And then he ended up directing Saw 2, 3, 4. which is probably the smartest not move bad. of his life to do that. Or, it was or a smart move. Yeah. It was a smart one. He was yeah. going to get there no matter what. There's some people who are just going to bull, bulldog their way into it no matter what. But I mean, he also does these strange ones where he, and they're they're worth saying, But he's got this one called like Repo the Gen- Genetic Opera. And it is. It's an opera horror film, and Paris Hilton's in it. Huh. And it kind of works. And the, but but he's just that guy. He's just got this passion for it, and he w- he would have made it happen. Well, no to give him what. a
1: compliment, I actually think the other the later saws are better than the first one.
2: Yeah, P- personally, the first one's a little bit of a.
1: It, I can understand why he would be like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. But Well,
2: especially it was before it came out and did a ton of money. Right. So he's kind of watching some of it. And there, there are some moments where some performances are Oh, are yeah. Not they're all a little that iffy. They yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and so, but but like part two, I mean, I remember I, it was one of the great moments was, you know, I went with him to the premiere in, yeah. in Vegas. And it was, you know, this is my buddy who was, you know, doing dub tapes a year right, ago. Right. And we're in Vegas, you know, Charlie Sheen sitting in front of right. us. Right. And he literally cheers for the twist at the end right. of it. Right. Um, um, you know, and so it's it's so fantastic. Well, there We're also was never around been... those people who just suddenly just balloon up. It's great. And balloon there wasn't up, a movie wrong. blown that's... up. It's OK. Blown we have a lot. We have Thank a lot you. of flubbed words on this <laughs> podcast.
1: Don't worry. When I listen back, I'm like uh, the uh, Saw movies are though. That was the kind of the first of their kind. Like, so I could imagine seeing that and being like, "What's going to happen with this? Is this really going to be a hit?" Because I think it was out of, it was out of left field that it became such a huge success.
2: Well, yeah, and you know, he started the whole what they call torture porn. Right, exactly. Or whatever. And and Darren's a good dark guy. I mean, he we would come up with a couple ones where he's like, they're like the producers thought that was too much. Wow, too much for Saw. That's really
1: good. Yeah.
2: No, I have, I have a soft spot
1: for those kinds of movies, which is kind of why I have a soft spot for all the gore that we had in Bones. Like, I loved loved what those guys brought on, on the table for us to play with. <laughs>
0: Chris, and, Chris and Kevin yeah. Yeager. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they are pretty amazing. Um, so how did that get you uh, to Bones? I know Bones is your first television job.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, as I think I said earlier, what, what the best thing that ever happened was I met the woman who is now my wife. And so um, at the time, I was still writing these uh, mostly horror films. And so we met, and she kind of looked at what What I hate about writing films is also you'll make a little bit of money, and then you just watch your bank account dwindle. Right. I like a weekly paycheck. I'm just somebody – I, I have less anxiety if I see it's coming in. That business in major in you. A, yeah.
1: It's like being an actor. <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, weekly is much better. And so my wife saw me suffering through this. And she and at the time, we um, we still do. We also have this friend uh, named Sean Jablonski, who's a TV writer. And she at the time, he was on Nip Tuck. And she saw that, and I think he was going into his third or fourth season. She's like, that's what you should be doing. You should be on one of these shows that goes a long, long time. So I was like, all right, that makes sense. So time for me to write a TV pilot. So I wrote a pilot. It was called Smooth Criminal at the time. And it was a very simple one. I think it was actually Feverish one New Year's Eve. And, you know, I'm watching Monk. And f- I was just also feeling lonely. I'm like, it's New Year's Eve, I'm feverish, and I'm just watching, watching Monk. I'm watching yeah. the <laughs> Monk. Uh, I might not be a winner. But, um, yeah, so I'm watching it, and I'm, I'm mad at myself. I'm like, this is such an obvious idea for a TV show, and such a great one. You know, the obsessive-compulsive detective. I go, it's as obvious as the criminal who solves crime because he knows every crime because he committed himself. himself. Right. And I go well, that's what I'm going to write. And so, yeah, in the <laughs> middle of my fever, I'm like, I started writing this, and that ended up being Smooth Criminal. And it's very much like an out-of-sight, kind of George Clooney. Right. For and uh, the unfortunate thing that happened there also was uh, two things. One, there was the writer strike. So I wrote it and was lucky enough to sell it to Fox. Um, but then we had a director who was great attached and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the writer strike happened, and then also there was the show White Collar, uh-huh. which was just similar enough right. to not be the best fit. And so what ended up happening is the writer strike happened, and I was ready just to give up. I'm like, you know, again, it felt close enough, but it's not going to get made, right. and I was just done. My wife's from Oregon. Oregon is lovely. It's time to move to Oregon. It's time to give up on the dream. And um, once again, my wife came through, and she said, you know, let's give it a couple more weeks. So I waited a couple more weeks, and the strike finally ended, and, um, you know, they did decide they're not going to make the pilot. But in the meanwhile, Fox, I owed them one more script, and they said, this time let's get a... Producer attached with this. some, you know, five hundred pound gorilla can help you move it around a little bit. So I met with a bunch of different producers, and then I met with Hart Hansen and so we got along very well immediately. But at the exact same time, uh, you know, there wasn't a job available on Bones, and so we were just working on this pilot. And I'd send him notes all the time, and he'd say, "Yeah, you know, I'd love to hire you, by the way, you know, but I just can't." Uh, and then finally, I was really ready to quit, and I was changing my resume. I was getting ready to make it seem less film focused, so I got right. a job in Oregon in something, and I got the call from Hart on a Friday and said, "You start on Monday." Wow, so go! That's season four. That was se- middle of season four. Middle, middle of season which, four, which is also rare. It's not a lot of times where you get a you writing you job use... in the middle of a season. And had you did, were you familiar with Bones? Uh, I became really familiar that weekend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I watched 67 episodes yeah, of the course of one weekend. My wife hates the title song so much. Oh, so that yeah. that was all she heard the yeah. in right There was no skip now, intro now. at the time.
1: No. no. And so you didn't So you did write a spec script, script for it or anything like that? You, it was
2: just my pilot.
1: Just was, your pilot. Yeah. like. And, and was that procedural, the pilot?
2: Yeah.
1: Okay, so he knew that you knew that fashion of writing yeah. in, in a sense. So, because I came on, you, I didn't realize that we came on at pretty much exactly the same time. Because I came on episode two of season four. Yeah, that was my first episode.
2: I was somewhere around
0: fifteen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so when <clears throat> when you got the job on Bones, that was that was almost like the end of when you would write uh, spec scripts for shows. It was kind of like the dawn of like you didn't have an original pilot, because now it it used to be. Oh, you want a job on Law and Order? Okay, well here's my um, my my spec ER pilot. Here's my spec Seinfeld. You know I can mimic the voices of these shows. And now, I, you know I don't I don't think it's common at all that writers have a, a, a spec Bones in their back pocket or a spec Sopranos. It's more. Um, where's your original pilot? Let me see your original pilot. Let me see your original pilot.
2: Yeah, it's probably because of me. It's, uh, <laughs> no, but, Definitely. But, but, but it was, I was right at that time because I, I I also, I didn't know enough. You know, it was one of these cases where, uh, I did probably the wrong thing. I think I probably should have written a house pilot, but at the time it was just like, no, I want to sell one. I can't sell a house pilot. They're not going to yeah. do that. So I, I did that. And my agent at the time explained to me, he goes, that was stupid. You know, this, we need to get you staffed. And he goes, nobody sells things this way. And I was told it won't sell. It will not sell. And then it was actually over my honeymoon. It sold. It was one of those weird ones where I go off on my honeymoon and my agent said, he goes, I'm not supposed to say this, but can you check your email while you're on your honeymoon? <laughs> and I'm like, all right, fine, I'll do that. And it was I, the day I flew back from my honeymoon. I went to a meeting at Fox at 12 o'clock. We went to go see one of the Bourne movies, came out and that was it. They're like, we bought it. So, um, But yeah, it was a changing time. And yeah, as you're right, nobody does a spec anymore. It's just not how it's done. And
0: and producers of TV shows used to buy those ideas from people and would go, oh, uh, that house, can I buy that idea from you and use it as a script that we, our staff will write. And then not hire the person or hire the person for that episode You get right. a story by credit but then they would go and take that uh, and do it you know Hart Hansen used to tell me the stories of him faxing in ideas to you know to, to Canadian shows and that's how he started you know writing on shows is that he would fax in his idea and they would buy it from him and then call him you know a couple weeks later I can you do you have a new idea? oh sure fax another like idea to them and get paid for that but never be like an official writer on the show. And now mm. that doesn't now the the there there is the freelance scripts where, you know, one or two of them a year will go to someone who's not on the staff, but typically, you know, that's like a writer's assistant or, you know, someone who maybe used to be a writer on the show. It's not like some someone who, you know, faxed in their idea and you bought it from them.
1: So, what how was the Transition of going on to being a staff writer from the rest of what you had experienced beforehand.
2: Uh, it was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, Im- immediately it was. It's especially Bones. Wh- what's great about because I've done a, a couple shows since then, but Bones was where we're on set. We're right there in the middle of it. You know, it's not like uh, we you know wrote the episodes in L.A. and they filmed it in D.C. No, we were you know two doors down, so it really felt like you were right in the middle of it. Yeah, and so it was, it was just fantastic from the very beginning, and it was a Beautifully run show, I mean, from top down. I mean, it was just great people that you were surrounded with. So, I mean, it was intimidating as hell when I first got there because they really kind of they were hitting their stride. They were doing great work, and it's a tough show to write because, I mean, we, we I hear about uh, certain shows where you'll write your dialogue and it's just medical, 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 right. medical, and then somebody else fills it in. We don't do that. It's Hart and Stephen and everybody else expected. You do your research. You talk to the researchers. You get the language right. And so you're writing technical language for, you know, all these different professions, uh, you know, forensic anthropologists, FBI profiler, all these different people. And then also you're adding the comedy to it. It's like, how many hats do I have to wear to write this freaking show and how many different voices? So it was was daunting. And my my first mini-scripts, I, I was just waiting to get axed. I'm like, oh, I'm glad if you guys can find something good in here because uh, – and and Hart was a great rewriter also. I mean, he had a couple times where he's like, great job, you did God's work, and then I don't think I recognized three words <laughs> afterwards. But he genuinely was happy. The question that I always heard uh, – I didn't hear this directly from him, but was whether or not um, he you know, was forced to rewrite something and didn't see that kernel of something. But if he saw that thing that got him excited – he didn't yeah. care if he had to rewrite a bunch right. of it is what it seemed like because he was excited by, by the possibilities of what was in there. That's great. And so he was great. And also he's just, he's just a fantastic writer. I mean he just – it can flow out of him. I am much more bang your head against right. the wall
0: until, until it comes out. Which was your first episode of Bones?
2: Uh, the Girl in the Mask. So, um, that, and it was, it was, it was such an odd one also where it was, you know, it was cause we, we heard that we were really big in Japan and that's why they wanted to do this episode. Mm-hmm. And so then the first thing Hart does with it is he goes, well, let's have, uh, this Japanese, um, you know, forensic anthropologist, but we can't tell if it's a man or a woman. I'm like, well, I'm like, not sure if that'll be endearing to the Japanese, <laughs> but uh, why not? And at the time, yes, I was just you know that's brilliant. I was so nervous. I'm like, really? That's my first episode. That's really. Um, it but, turned out well. It turned out great. Well, Ian Toyn directed, and that that was my blessing. Was Ian? I think directed my first two episodes. Oh, that's so incredible. To have him yeah. under your wing, uh, have you under him. Uh, You'll, you'll edit that right. Yeah. Um, it
1: was just a fantastic experience. So what was, I'm going back a little bit. Like, what was your first week? Like, do you remember, like, what is the first thing that you're assigned when you get into the writer's room as like a brand new writer?
2: Um, not a desk. They didn't have enough offices. Right. So, uh, that was the first thing that I remembered is they're (laughs) like, we don't know where we're going to put you. Right. Uh, Eventually there were two of us who were hired on the same day, myself and Dean Lapata. Uh huh. And so Dean and I eventually shared an office for a little while, but it was really like, you know, I, I think for, brief while i was in a different building you know it really you know we were trying to figure out the shuffling because you know i guess a couple of writers had left at that point and we were trying to figure out um so it was it was mostly the chaos of that uh we also had two rooms is how we were running at the time we had one room breaking one story and another room breaking another story so it was just you know you were assigned which room to go into, right. and <clears throat> it was also a tough one because it was close enough to the end of the year where everyone's trying to figure out what they're going to do next year is the right. show coming back. And I'm right. like, I just got here. Can, <laughs> we, can we have this discussion later and on?
0: This is at a point too, where bones has already gone further than Pete. Most people expected it to go. Yeah. And like four seasons is, is that's, that's a lot of shows. That's 80 something episodes already. And it was never the most high profile show. And it had started to take off a little bit and started to get more acclaim and you know the 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 lack of office space the studio didn't think we were going to be there for a long time yeah it was like oh do we have to find another building and no? and so eventually i think after that season it was picked up for two seasons for a season five and six yeah and so when that happens you know everyone is able to breathe a little bit easier you know at that end of the year shuffle. It's not like, uh, oh, what's what, what's happening to everyone's job and everyone gets a panic a little bit less and go and have a few weeks off to recover, knowing that, oh, we get to come back.
2: No, it was fantastic. I remember when we got the call, um, I was actually in North Carolina at the time, and uh, the woman running the room was Carla Kettner. And Carla called me up and she said, just want to let you know. Bones got picked up. She goes, good news, bad news. Good news, uh, bones got picked up for two more years. Bad news is we need 246 more bone clues. <laughs> because that's the math. Yeah, of what you need. Because right. we <laughs> would average at least one bone clue per act, per episode. Oh, my gosh. And so it's many more bones than there are in the human body. So we're like, yeah, no, no problem. We got this. Which brings
1: me to a, a big question, actually. And I talked to Josh about this before. How on earth did you guys think of so, so many different stories and like not overlap scenarios. And I mean, did you have somebody who was make, keeping track of things that you wouldn't possibly over, overlap a crime that had happened in season one and season 12? Or was that not even an issue? I mean-
2: No, it was a huge issue. Yeah. I mean, we, didn't, we did not want to ever overlap. And I, I think going back to also my first season, Uh, The funny thing is, is back when I got hired, it wasn't, everything wasn't streaming the way it was today. So it was very easy to, I was able to pick up the DVDs for seasons one and two and... Part of three, I couldn't get all of it. Right, and then, but I also hadn't seen all the f- of uh, season four that had already At come the time, on. Yeah, because there was no way to catch up. So one stupid thing that I did was right when I was hired. It was also, you know, they were between breaking episodes and people were writing, and there was just about four days where not they they didn't know what to do with me because they're like we're not in the room breaking. They're like just go Guy keep yourself an office. Go, yeah, Ooh. go go. They're like go keep yourself busy and you know think about what you want to do for your next episode. Think what you want to do for your first episode. Well, I'm not very good at sitting on my hands. So I'm, I started sketching out, and I wrote an outline for a first episode. And I went to this other writer, uh, Corinne Rosenthal, and I go, um, so I'm done. What do I do now? <laughs> and she kind of looks at me, she's like, you idiot, you arrogant idiot. Yeah. Um, she, we're, we're friends, so I can say that. But, uh, <laughs> but So she's like, well, great. Now you have to pitch it to the rest of the room. So I went in, and I had to pitch it. to And I was like, oh, God, I thought you were just going to look right. at it and give me some pointers. Next thing I know, I'm pitching it. I'm standing up and pitching this thing. And that was the worst thing possible because there were so many places where they had just recently used moments and clues. So they're like, okay, you got to erase these two scenes from scene, uh, act one, these from this act, these from that act. And the next thing that happened, they're like, "But we love all the rest." But it was this oddly misshapen thing that I had to go back and figure out, where where you start taking off scaffolding from a building, but they still want a building. Uh. And so it was that was a bad episode for me as far as figuring all that stuff out. Uh, but yeah, no, but but it was anything that we'd done before, we took it out. But it was very much, and it was hard because I mean, it gets harder as the seasons go on. By the time season twelve, it's like. You've done everything. Yeah. And eventually there is that person whose job in the room, and it's the worst job in the room. It's just to go, we've already done that. I was going to say, is there we've someone who keeping track of that? Yeah. The, yeah. And it's hard. You, you have to learn not to be a Debbie Downer in doing right. that. Because eventually people hate you. If you're that voice, so you have to certain, a nice, reason. we've done that, but here's another way to do it. Right. And that, that's another key thing. If you're a writer is you can't just be the person who says no, you can say no, but here's, here's an, an here. answer. You need to have an answer. The person who just says no without an answer doesn't last. It's a bad improver down. too.
0: And as the show goes on, I feel like there's some intimidation in becoming a new writer on, on that show that you have gone through 175 episodes at a certain point and hopping in at a later date is there's there's people who are are afraid of it who don't want to take on that that challenge
2: i I think it i'd be very tough like i mean ncis if i went and staffed on ncis tomorrow the first two years i'm there is just learning you know what's already been done watching the past episodes and in that one also, I really I mean, I tip my hat to them because I mean they have NCIS, NCIS LA, they have NCIS New right. Orleans, all those ones, and somehow you have to funnel all that together and not just repeat beats. Right. And just like you know, the idea of all those you know, it's the monkeys typing in a room, and eventually Shakespeare comes yeah. out. Eventually, you're going to screw up in some way, right? Uh, and there will be that overlap. And we we had a couple of those sometimes, but but we tried really hard. And eventually, I became the person. It's funny. I realized my memory. I don't remember anything that's on the written page, but if I've seen something, it's pretty much in there forever. So that that. Was it was a good asset. Well, I think there was good collaboration
1: too, because I remember actually in my cancer episode that Keith, I think Keith Fogelson had written, um, there was I had a speech to Booth talking about you know giving up and leaving, and I had remembered I was like you know my first episode ever on Bones I talk about how my dad died of cancer, and I talked to Keith and Stephen about it, and I said can we put something in there about that, and they were like oh my god I like totally forgot because that was never it's never referenced again. I referenced it in my very first episode. And they, they put it in, and it's like that collaboration I think with the actors is helpful as well, because there's no way that everybody's gonna remember every little thing in there, but if each, peop, if each, each person collaborates together to share those memories, I think it's really helpful. I mean, was it hard, there are so many recurring characters on Bones, obviously, squint turns aside, I mean, there's a lot of recurring characters. Was it hard to find the voices for them um, as they came and went, and as new writers came and went?
2: Oh uh, yeah, it's 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 very difficult. And you know, that's why you know, you have one person at the end the showrunner who's kind of checking those voices again and again. Um but it's it's incredibly challenging. Uh and then you also have to give the hat, uh, hats off for I th- I always talk about this when talking about heart and bones. Uh of when the voices change. and the, the biggest one was, you know, Pej's character. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, is, yeah, you know, he went from having this accent. <laughs> yeah. And and I mean, I remember we all watched it, we're like, well, we love him, but that's that's into that character. He's, yeah. he's not coming back, and heart's like, no, I'm not giving up. I'm like, you can't write your way out of that. <laughs> he's like, oh yes, I can, and I'm like, oh, you are a master. Um, but but that yeah. Sometimes the voices change dramatically, right? And um, but but I think we one thing we always talk about in the writers' room for um, Bones, and this was a sign of a great show, and it always is. Is what, what's the DNA of the show? And when the characters are so well-defined, it makes it so much easier for anybody else who has to follow afterwards. Is You understand who Brendan is immediately. Oh, you yeah. understand who Bones is. I mean, it's who uh, Booth is. You understand who Hodgins is. They are such unique voices. And I do try to challenge myself when I write something now, especially if I'm working on a new pilot, is I say to each of my characters, come up to a dead body. Do that. What is the different thing that they say? Yeah. Because if they all say, "Oh my gosh, gross," you screwed up. You you have the one same voice. Case, one voice. Yeah. Don't do that. So what is that? It has to be unique, and it's challenging. Because sometimes you you go a little too far, right. By making them characters, but there there has to be something. So I I would say that's always a good challenge: is make something big happen, and does everybody answer differently? Then you've got to. Show.
1: It's also easier to go too far and pull that back than to have it all be the same on the same page. Yeah. So uh, we spent a lot of
0: time um, on the set of bones in the writers' room in the office, and like we would have three, four meals a day at at the office. That kitchen was a, we had one kitchen in the bones production and writer's office, and there would constantly be conversations going on, serious conversations, funny conversations, just the range of everything. And so, you know, if I can ask you and part of this podcast, you know, it's called second meal. Um, what are your, what, what are some of your favorite meals that you ate in that office? And then also stuff that's like, is very LA. Cause so I'm assuming Los Angeles cuisine is different than North Carolina.
2: Very much so. Um, and I'm a big foodie, so that's the first thing is I, I love food. Um, my first week at Bones, uh, you want to talk about something that was, remem- uh, was very memorable. I, I got there, and the assistant asked, you know, what do you like to eat? And I think I said, like, pistachios and jelly beans. <laughs> <laughs> and I, she said, okay, great. And so when I finally get in the office, I go, and there is a costco size. You know, thing of jelly beans and pistachios. Oh I'm God. like, this is you know, 25 pounds of each. I'm like, fantastic. I, <laughs> I am home, and uh, but that w- that was the danger of the place. I mean, I, you always hear about the fr- freshman 15, but there's the 20 that I gained on oh, bones yeah. in that first season, and it's just automatic and it's delicious. I've never said no to a breakfast burrito a day in my life. Oh yeah, um, they did a machado uh, breakfast burrito there sometimes that was just fantastic. Um, but yeah, every day I would go into I'm like, I'm going to order oatmeal. I'm going to order oatmeal. And then <laughs> breakfast burrito comes off my lips every single time. Um, so yeah, the production is just amazing. Yeah, because you craft services every morning. Then you go into the writer's room. And whatever it was, any snack that you want. Because so the, they really wanted you to stay in the writer's room. They gave you every comfort you could, but you don't leave. So it's like, here's all the food that you need. Just stay here and come up with ideas. So whatever food you wanted, you just made this list. Well, and the other danger, of course, was... On set, you have multiple meals and snacks all throughout the day. On the writer's room, you also have snacks throughout the day, and you have uh, lunch at 12 o'clock, no matter what. No matter when the, where the production is at, you have a lunch at 12 o'clock. But then they'd always come in and tell us what production's lunch was. So we would have- Like more, an hour later. An hour yeah, yeah, later. Yeah. <laughs> and we would go there, and it didn't matter. you know. It would be like, okay, we just had a full meal, and it's like, wait, steak? They're having steak? Right. I'm going over for steak. And so- cookie pie or whatever? <laughs> Cookie pie, I, uh, yeah. you guys already talked about. Cookie no, we haven't pie. actually talked about it yet. Cookie pie is the greatest thing uh-huh. that our guys Bruce's yep, catering, Bruce's catering. Bed, and it's it is exactly what it sounds like. It's a giant tray of cookie uh, that oh. is just barely cooked enough oh. and just melts with they put with ice cream and it's delicious. And it was by far my favorite thing in the world. Oh yeah. And but there was a point where the writers and the production office was eating so much of catering <laughs> that they finally said you can't go there anymore. (laughs) And so we got in trouble, but, but I, I, I was not okay with that. And this was by the time I was show running in season 11 and 12, I go, you know, I'll make a compromise. We can't go over there except for cookie pie. And they're like, deal. Deal. And so yeah, I was not willing to give up the cookie pie. But I mean I think one year my wife ordered it for my birthday for, uh, From uh, Bruce's? From Bruce's. She wow. just asked if they would make an extra one. Oh, she paid that's awesome. them and stuff. So we do have it to, is that good.
0: We we do have to explain that Bruce's it were were the is a catering company that caters for, you know, probably uh, you know, dozens of productions. So it's a big catering company and each production has like their own food truck and their own crew of guys. And so it would be like a food truck that would serve you and then they would they would lay out, you know, probably three or four tables with all sorts of different things. So in the morning, you could go up to the truck and get a breakfast burrito or breakfast quesadilla or tacos or- An omelet. You
1: know, they had an omelet bar. Well, the om- yeah. Hold on, hold
0: on. The omelet <laughs> bar wasn't <laughs> at the truck. The yeah, omelet was. bar. No, the omelet bar was one of the tables over the. Oh side, yeah, next to the truck. Yeah, next to the yeah, truck. Yeah. So they had all these tables set up with you know there was at least twenty different condiments for your omelets and oh, you can so get dangerous. egg whites or you can get. I'm kind of making myself hungry.
1: As yeah. as an as an actor, it's it's uh, atrocious too because you're like, oh, I'm about to go shoot the scene. Let me have a three breakfast burritos and like eight pieces of bacon and an omelet. Actually, it was funny when people when they would not let us go get food sometimes because they want you to go through hair and makeup right away and be like, what do you want? was such a relief, be- relief because I would be like, just get me an egg white, okay, uh, egg white um, omelet and some fruit. And if I don't see it, see what the options are, I'm okay. Yeah, but like you, if I go over there and I'm like, oh, that guy just got a strawberry with But it's also the guys
0: and- at the truck were so nice, and they're like, oh, you don't want to try the strawberry waffle? Right, right. Yeah. And you be like... Well,
2: I guess I'll try the strawberry right. waffle, too. Well, and it had to have been worse for an actor. Oh, I mean, because I go in there, and if I gain my yeah. 20, nobody cares. But if you gain your 20, eventually you're going yeah, uh, to get cut. Yeah.
1: They're not going to make a storyline where Wendell, like, balloons all of a sudden. We would have. We, we would have. For, oh, for you, me? we would have <laughs> Oh, that. come yeah, on. Yeah, I yeah. would have done it then.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but no, no it, was, it, was, it was wonderful. I mean, it was. And then you'd also have, like, you know, at the uh, fr- end of Friday night. You'd get pizza uh, for the last, um, just your second meal. Yeah, your second meal. And I was thinking about that. My favorite was uh, Baroni's. Yeah. I thought that was fantastic. That's uh, a really thick cut of Half a mile from my house. Oh, it's delicious. Yeah. Uh, They always had, and they had combinations I never would have had, like pepperoni and jalapeno and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty fantastic.
1: So just going back a second, because I'm curious about this, and then I want to get to your favorite meals in Los Angeles as well. But the, the transition to you becoming a showrunner. Can you explain, like, how that came about and, you know, was, uh, how exciting that was for you?
2: Um, yeah, no, it, what happened was, um, so I was on Bones from season four until the very end, season 12. So um, just before season uh, 10 ended, um, I think, was it season six or seven, uh, Hart Hansen stepped down. I'm not sure was exactly. It? I think it was later than that, wasn't it? Or was it that early? I think it was out early. Okay. Well,
1: yes, I think four. It, it, okay. it happened twice.
2: It happened twice because one time it was for uh, Baxter, one time for the finder. Oh, oh that's right. Well, that's no, right. The Finder was really the only one time. The the it was, that was six it was or for seven. The then. Finder, yeah.
0: and then it, it, we was trying to do both. It was it was because Hart would always keep his office right in the Bones uh, you know the Bones office but then we had different offices for Baxter and we did had different offices for The Finder. So he would try to keep as much of a toe in and it's not an easy thing to 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 be involved in two shows at
1: the same time. And his alone. other show with Jason Isaacs, right? Uh,
0: yeah that was a that was a pilot, pilot. that we yeah, did. Yeah. So it was kind of like he stepped away for, right, you know, for right, right. three months from running it, but was still involved in what was going on.
2: Right. Hmm um so but by the by the time of end of uh, season 10 Stephen Nathan had been running it for many years right and um he just got to a place where he was ready to step down and so what happened was you know they internally discussed Stephen and Hart dead you know about who was going to be taking over so um at the time you know I'd been there for forever and then another guy John Collier mm-hmm. who's a little bit older than me a little more experienced he had also been there for a while and we just got along Like a house on fire. So it became a very easy thing to just say, okay, you guys are going to co-show run it. And we're good at complimenting each other. You know, I'm good at sprinting out and coming up with a thousand ideas. And then John goes, yeah, here's why these ideas actually don't work. Right, I'm going to slow you down a little bit. And uh, easily the smartest guy I know. Yeah. he
0: He used to be a writer on Monk. So back yeah. when you were coming
1: up with your
2: ideas, <laughs> yep. it all comes full circle. Uh-huh. Well, it was so embarrassing. I mean, he, he also wrote on the Simpsons. Simpsons and yeah. Keenan I was gonna Hill, say, yeah. and I've quoted him back to him, right? Which is really embarrassing. It must uh, be not, flattering, though. I think it's. A li- I think he's mostly embarrassing yeah. for me. Um, but so it was just this wonderful opportunity. I mean, that um, you know, it was it was a strange one. We kind of knew that Stephen was leaving, and we knew John was gonna be brought up, um, but. I didn't know what was going to happen for me um, until late in the process. And then finally I got called down into the
1: awesome. office and
2: they said, zoom. I'm like, fantastic. And then after that it was just wanting to hold on to our jobs for as long as possible. Cause it is the greatest job in the world. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we, we were told season 11 is definitely the last one. Definitely. I remember. no way you're getting another we, one.
1: We had the like cliffhanger ending that like, if we don't come back, it could still end on that
2: episode. Right? I'm, no, no. It was, it was written in enti- end of, well, end of season 11, 11, uh, ends with Zach. And that's that, right. That was written entirely because that was what we said. We'd, Give them if we got a season oh, twelve. Okay, okay, we go. We will do something. We're Crazy. gonna bring back somebody yeah, yeah. from season three. Right, and right. We're gonna get a whole new direction. We we laid out this whole thing for uh, Dana Walden. Yeah, and she was fantastic. She said, you know, this show deserves a proper send off. Yeah, and you know, can you guys do it in five episodes? I think is what we we're looking at. Or do you need more? And if you need more, what are you gonna give us in those more? And we made it all about character. We said yeah. this is. We went back, and it was David Boreanaz's idea, which is great. He goes. Really, when we when John and I got hired, he goes, go back to season one, look at those characters, really see who they are. What else do we need to say about them? Yeah. And we watched it, and he was right. And all of a sudden, these storylines started coming out of re-watching season one. We're like, there are parentheses we need to close. And that's what we came to Dana with. And she's like, you know, give us another season. And that's it great. was just fantastic. Now, I'd be still doing it to this day. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, It was it was like, well... I think our initial pitch was, you know, how we can finish it in three seasons. And she's like, (laughs) Uh, dial it down a little. We're like, okay, fine. But, uh, no, it was just a a wonderful opportunity. So now you
1: continue the relationship with Kathy Kathy Reich, right? And you um,
2: just recently sold a pilot to ABC? We did, um, yeah. So we sold this pilot called Wolf, uh, and and that was a, it was an interesting thing how it all came about. Um, you know, Kathy and I got along great over the course of the show. Uh, we're both uh, Southerners to a degree. Uh-huh. I'm North Carolina, she's South Carolina, and so we we got along great all the time. And what happened was I was meeting with this producer who said, you know, everyone wants the next Bones. I'm like, okay, well, I'll figure that out. And so I'm your guy. I'm your guy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. clearly. And so we start, I started pitching all these ideas, and he's like, no, not that, not not that. And then finally I came up with one that um, this producer liked. And he goes, you know what would be better? What if, what if Kathy Reichs was attached as a consultant? And I said, okay, sure. So I called her up. I'm like, would you want to consult on this? And she's like, yeah, absolutely. And then I said, oh, she's in. And then the producer goes, you know what would be even better? What if she wrote a book version of this? <laughs> And I'm like, are you kidding me? I got to call up this woman who's written, you know, 20 best-selling novels. It's right. like, would you write a book version of my idea? <laughs> and she goes, uh, sure. And then that idea ended up dying. And, but we just kept talking anyway. So th- that, was, that was some other crazy idea. And then we just kept talking. And so Kathy brought up this. Um, there's a forensics lab that's in Oregon, actually. And it does animal forensics. And she's like, I think it's a fascinating world, and would you be interested in doing it? And it's all animal-related crimes. And I started thinking about it, I'm like, I'm like, it's too depressing for me. Because it's like, what am I going to deal with the dead dog of the week? Yeah. We'll just cool. cry our eyes. Yeah. Out. Nobody can handle that. And so then we found this different um, angle for it, uh, which is basically it is a veterinarian who is elected coroner of Boulder, Colorado, and he has his unique insights that he uses to solve human crimes. And the, 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 the inside, the lucky moment was when I realized that coroners are elected officials. You do not need a medical license. Interesting. So there are, there are sheriffs who are the coroner. There are mayors who are the coroner. Wow. You don't need that. So it actually is something that can happen. And a town that's as funky as Boulder might right. just be the place that can do this. So that was sort of the fun of it. And it was a lot of just this research of just realizing how much we are like animals. We we think all the time that we're smarter, we're more noble, but we're really a lot of animal instincts. And, you know, we, uh, and certainly when killing is one of our natures that, you know, is very animalistic. So it's been great to do research with her. And so uh, we're now waiting just to see what's going to happen. So what are you waiting for? Just explain how the process goes. So like, yeah, so the, the process goes like this. So Kathy and I, this was back in, August, we went around and pitched to the four networks and so we have a great uh, producing team uh capital entertainment aaron kaplan mm-hmm. dana honor and so we went around with them and we went to uh first we went to fox and we did we did ve- we were very lucky we went to fox sold it went to uh abc sold it Went to NBC, sold it, and then CBS passed. That was our only one, and I thought CBS was the one lock, <laughs> and that's the only one who actually passed. So then, uh, after we sold to a bunch of them, you know, the, the different companies came in with their offers and would say, okay. This is how serious we are about it. And we just weighed who we thought were the best home. And um, ABC, we liked right away because they'd done Castle. They understand uh-huh. this kind of show. Yeah. Um, so we went with them. We have to turn in then a two-page document saying what the show's about. Then you turn in a 15-page document about what the you know, first episode is going to be. Yeah. And then you finally turn in your pilot script, which is about 55 pages. You do a couple of rewrites of it. And then you just wait so we're right in the middle of that season right now where i think abc just picked up their first show yesterday okay mm-hmm. so um you know, we're we're just hoping for an answer sooner than later but you know everyone seems happy so far it's been just fantastic collaboration and you know i, I want to be on another show that goes 12 seasons that's yeah. my goal yeah here. exactly gotta get that cookie pie
1: yeah that's your first demand and and pistachios and <laughs> jelly beans so your favorite place in L.A., like you're a foodie, what, what are some of your favorite spots, that, like some of your favorite gourmet places and some of your favorite fast, quick spots that you are j- just love to go
2: to? Yeah, I, I, I do a lot of both. Um, so do I. <laughs> my, 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 my addiction, I'm, I'm pretty simple. Um, First of all, Shake Shack is yeah. just phenomenal to me. So any excuse that I can be nearby and just go, grab some cheese fries, just get the standard shake burger. I did uh, see,
0: I r- ran into Michael one day, Outside of Shake Shack at the Century City Mall. Oh yes. Yeah.
2: No, I, I look for any excuse. Um, uh, there's the the one that Sprinkles Cupcakes version of their pizza, Pisana, which is on Brentwood, is phenomenal. Oh, they yes. do they do yes. a braised short rib pizza. Wait, owned by Sprinkles? It's owned by Sprinkles. It's, I don't it's know. they pizza place. place. We'll go there to the right awesome. after. Awesome. Uh, it's the most indulgent pizza you'll ever have in your life. I mean, it is. It's braised short rib, and I forget what cheese they put on, but it's just, it's, it's gooey as can be. It's just Phenomenal! Wow! So that one's that one's up there for me. That uh, I do more than I should. Um, another favorite meal is uh, Lukshan in uh-huh. Culver City. Yeah, yeah. They do a. Um, a Thai basil lobster roll. Oh, that sounds is, really good. Is, is nothing but pure heaven. Uh, favorite meal when we were at Fox Lot uh, that was nearby, uh, Hinoki and the Bird. Yeah, I've been there. Is quite I, nice.
1: I went there one night after a long day of shooting. Actually, I had a, we shot till like 8 p.m. and then I had like a 5 a.m. call the next day and I got, the, I got a room at the hotel there yeah. because it took me two hours to get home at that time where I was living and I was like, I'm just going to get a hotel room. And I went to Hinoki
2: and the Bird and it was fantastic. Yeah. That that that's my favorite one over there, and uh, the one there is the yam that they have there. It sounds like the most Ooh. boring thing you could it's have. Like
0: charred, yam. It's charred yam, it's
2: but delicious. then they also have creme fraiche, bacon, and some sort of oh spicy my God. thing How on can you top, go wrong? and it's just phenomenal. So. Um, What's the other one that I did the other day? Um, Night Market? Yeah. Night market song. Uh-huh. That Thai Place? Was, yeah, Thai yeah. Place. That yeah. was fantastic. Spicy Incredibly as all Incredibly spicy.
1: Yeah. I went there and I ordered the papaya salad not knowing what I was in for, and I was like drenched in sweat for the you entire time. You didn't realize
2: how spicy onions are, because it's just onions God. or something that's in it's, there. It's insane. They are fantastic. So um you know, uh, John Collier, who uh, I was the co show runner with uh, on Bones, he was fanatical about going through the uh, John Gold 101. Yeah, his,
1: his trip across the city. Yeah. yeah.
2: So we we did a lot of those together. I remember, but it was always, I was, he, John had always done like in the first 80 before, right. right away. So he's like, you'd call me up and he's like, we're going to go meet at this Korean Random, hole, yeah. hole in the wall place. So right. we went to one, and I'm, I'm sure somebody could figure it out because it's on the 101 list, but their specialty is gelatinous crab. And it's raw crab that's just been fermented. So you eat this crab, and it just kind of sucks it out like jello. And it was phenomenal, but it is the one texture of the, is weird, but the it the tastes amazing. The yeah. odd as hell, and but yeah. So anything like that, any adventurous, crazy thing.
1: So that's yeah. Those are all great spots, and I think we're gonna have to try some of those places. So final words, man. Like what you gave a little bit of advice earlier, but what what advice would you give to people who want to come out here and write?
2: Um it's not for everybody. I yeah. mean, I think it really is. It was, I, I was glad, I'm so glad I did it. But if it's one of those things, if you knew the journey that's ahead. Oh, yeah. And I think it's unfortunate. It's, it's even tougher now is I look back and when I first moved out here, I we I ended up buying a condo with my brother in Venice for $200,000, and I thought we were getting robbed. Oh, you are. I, I just so smart. It, I just thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard in my life. You know, coming from North Carolina, I'm like, do you understand where you can get for $200,000 right. in North Carolina? I'm like, this place is terrible. And we, we sold the place. We did fine, but I think it was back on the market recently for over a million. Oh, I'm sure. And yeah. you just kind of it, – it's just daunting. So, I mean – if you're going to be doing this, just you really you got to have a ton of passion. There's a lot of people out here trying to do it. Um, it's hard, and it's even harder now because it's even more expensive. Um, so as much many ducks in a row as you can get before you get out here, as many sample scripts as you can get done before you get out here. I'd advise doing it, and then once you take a job, be around a lot of people. Show your work to everyone. Don't be don't be afraid. Uh, the worst thing I've ever seen is people are so precious with their ideas that they won't share them. Uh, The only way you'll get anything done is to be as collaborative as possible.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. Will you come back? Once your show is picked up, we can talk about it then. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike.